from Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 27. Uh, yeah, 27, that is the passage for today. And um, we will look at two questions, really. Two passages. Um, one deals with a political question about tax, verse 13 through 17. And then the next passage deals with a theological question about the resurrection, verse 18 to 27. In this first passage, we will see how Jesus answers uh, the question that they asked him really outside of the categories, and he uh, directs our minds to God and to the kingdom of God that is not of this world and beyond this life. Very surprising answer to the question. We will see that. And then the second question, a theological question about the resurrection, is refuted by Jesus. He refutes the argument, and again, he will direct our minds to the reality of God that is beyond the here and now. So these, uh, I will try to connect these two passages and see how the Lord directs our minds to God, the reality of God, and his kingdom that is beyond this life. So Mark chapter 2 is a chapter full of uh, discourse and um, questioning. And I mean, debates really, but all these questions are very nasty questions. They are meant to uh, trick him, to bring Jesus down. Um, it started with uh, Jesus cleansing the temple in chapter 11. That was really not appreciated by the leaders. Um, so the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, really the, um, the people in charge of the nation, um, they come to him in chapter 11 and question his authority. And then we have seen that the Lord Jesus answers the question um, by asking them a question which they don't want to answer because they are hypocrites. But the attacks continue in chapter 12. Um, now they send the Pharisees and the Herodians. Just think of that for a moment. Here is the Lord Jesus. He is on his way to the cross. It's really just a few more days, and he will give his life on the cross. Jesus is fully aware of what he's going to suffer, what he's going to do for the people. And then the people that should be most happy about that, the people that knew their Bibles best and the prophecies and all that was prophesied about the Messiah, these of all people are jealous, they reject him, and all they want is to bring him down. So let's, let's just let that sink in for a, for a while. If we, maybe you remember a point in time where you tried to do something nice to somebody else and that kindness was rejected. Have you ever tried to do something really big uh, for somebody and instead of appreciation, you meet with criticism? If you have had that experience, you know that something inside happens, something inside breaks, and suddenly you it drains all the life out of you. You just feel like giving up. You, you're like, okay, if that's the case, then sort it out yourself, you know? Solve your own problem. I am out of here. And then we see Jesus. And last week, um, Stan talked about the patience of God. 
and we see that here and as we read through these chapters i hope that you will admire jesus how he deals with the trick questions how he deals with the attacks and to see his patience and also to learn from his answers and then just to realize that he has the same patience even for me and i hope that as we read these chapters your reaction your response is like that is my jesus that is my lord i am proud of him so let's start reading in mark chapter 12 and verse 13. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and whose inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Last week's passage in uh, verse 12 ended with, so they left him and went away. But that doesn't mean that they left Jesus completely or left him alone. In fact, all they do is they withdraw, but then they send other people to attack him. Now they put forward the Pharisees and the Herodians. And the purpose is very obvious. They want to trap him. So they ask a question that is a highly charged question, a political question, and they have framed it in such a way that whatever Jesus is going to answer, he will be in trouble. At least that is what they think. On the one side, we have the Pharisees, who were very much against uh, the Roman rule, the Roman oppression, in fact, like most of the people. But on the other hand, you have the Herodians who supported Herod, and indirectly also supported Rome um, because Rome put Herod in a, in, in a position. Okay. If the screen being shared, is it right? Said the screen is black. Never mind. I will just stop the screen. Sorry. Sorry about that. So the Pharisees on the one side and the Herodians on the other side. Um, opposite parties in the political spectrum, but now they join forces. Normally they would be really against each other, but now they join forces to bring Jesus down. And they approach him with flattering words like what we read teacher we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion and you are not swayed by appearances but truly teach the way of god very flattering and then they really fire the question 
trying to bring him down. And it is, in fact, a double question. Um, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this tax that they were talking about was what you call a poll tax or a half tax. Um, it was just one denarius, which is not a lot of money, um, just one day's wages for, uh, you know, for a worker. Um, it's a bit similar to the tax that we find in the Old Testament that God had instituted for his people, where the Israelites had to pay uh, half a shekel for their lives. Um, this was something similar, but it was, of course, not paid to God or to the temple, but to, the, to Caesar, to the Roman emperor that held the nation of Israel in subjection. So it was not so much about the amount of money, it was more of the, the symbol of their subjection to Caesar. And therefore this text was very much hated. And there you can see that this question was really a highly charged uh, question. It had everything to do with, um, you know, their, their, their freedom, their pride as being uh, Israelites, but still under Roman oppression. So immediately you can see that Jesus is on thin ice. If he says, yes, you should pay, then all the people, including the Pharisees, would turn against him. In fact, he would lose all his followers and that would bring him down. If on the other hand, he would say, uh, no, you shouldn't pay, then of course the Herodians would report him and he would be crushed by uh, you know, by the Roman soldiers. Um, he would just end the same way that um, this Judas the Galilean, some 25 years earlier, earlier um, he was brought down. Um, in Acts chapter 5, you can read about uh, the Pharisee Gamaliel, who mentions this Judas the Galilean, who led a tax revolt. Um, and then it says, that he was a man who rose up, drew away some of the people, and then perished. I mean, that is how the Romans would deal with a character like that. So Jesus is trapped, they think. Either he's going to lose all his followers, and that will bring him down, or he's going to be crushed by the Roman government. So it is a political question, and usually politicians are very clever in avoiding to answer a question that they don't want to answer. And that leaves the, the questioner, the reporter or the whatever that asked the question very frustrated. Like the politician will use a lot of words and, 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 and say a lot of things, but you feel you don't answer my question. That leaves you very frustrated. But here, the end result is not frustration, but it says in verse 17, and they marvel at him. And that is why I find this so excellent. That is why I'm so proud of my Lord Jesus. Because Jesus is going to answer this question outside the categories. They want a simple yes or no to the question. Are you submitting to this pagan Caesar or are you going to rebel against him? Is your kingdom subjected to this Roman Empire, or is it going to go against it, yes or no? And Jesus is in fact saying, 
my kingdom is not of this world. It is outside your categories. And let me explain that. Now, what are some of the things that matter most in this world? I think it's this. It is status or uh, image. It is power or influence. And it is money. Of course, you can mention more things maybe, but it would be quite interesting to research uh, how much of uh, political campaigns and wars and revolutions can be traced back to these three status, power, and money. And these Pharisees, they know that if he answers yes to that question, he's going to lose his status. But the people are going to hate that answer and they're just going to, um, to leave him or even turn against him. If he says no, on the other hand, he's going to lose his power because he just will be he will be just be crushed by the by the Romans. And here Jesus is in fact saying, you know, status, you're talking about status or power. You know what? I don't care. I don't even have money. Your third category. He says, please show me a denarius. Why did he ask that? Well, because he didn't have one himself. So they show him a denarius. And in those days, uh, a denarius was a silver coin with the image of Tiberius Caesar. And it had a Latin inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it said, high priest. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, high priest. And they show that coin to the real son of God and the real high priest. And the question was, should we pay or should we not pay? And Jesus does not say, yes, pay or no, don't pay. What he does is he changes the verb. They ask, should we pay? And he answers with render. That is not pay, that means give back. Render to Caesar what already belongs to him. It has his image on it. Give it back to him, it's his. Who can object against that? That was not just a smart answer or a smart way out. It was stating the fact this coin already belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. But then he draws the line. He says, give back to Caesar what already belongs to him, but give back to God what belongs to God. You see, Caesar has his image on his coins. God has his image on you. You are made in the image of God. So give back to God what already belongs to him. Your life does not belong to yourself. It belongs to God. Give back, render to God your allegiance, your worship, your life, your all. Don't give that to Caesar or to this world. Give that back to God where it belongs. If this status and power and money that is about the here and the now, 
that's about me or my career or my influence or uh, my comfort or my options or opportunities. It's all about me, but the kingdom of Jesus is different. It is outside the categories. And look to Jesus himself. He knew that he would go to the cross alone, no followers. All would forsake him. Even God would forsake him. He knew he would be crushed. He knew he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price for a slave. He would hang on the cross, naked and between criminals, and outwardly, as the people saw him hanging there, powerless. He would give up all that the world thinks that is important. But then he would triumph through that cross. He rose from the dead. The Pharisees could only think of the here and now, and because of their position, they were, they were jealous of losing that position, so they wanted to silence that voice not knowing that the death of Christ would be followed by his resurrection. And that would launch a revolution different from any other revolution that is still lasting today. He would redeem a people that would render to God what belongs to God. A people that would not live for the here and now. A people that would not be motivated by status and power and money but they would be kings and priests in a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that is so otherworldly that no power and no revolution and no amount of money can overthrow it, a kingdom that will last forever. And that will bring us, that brings us to the next passage for today, uh, verse 18. Let's continue reading there. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the women, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So now the Sadducees come. We have seen the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now another group that also were really not friends with the Pharisees because they were on the other side of the theological spectrum. But now suddenly they are quite willing to join forces against in their combined, their joint attack 
again to Lord Jesus. These Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection, no afterlife. So by definition, they were living for the year and now. They were religious, and from what I read is that they only accepted the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, not the whole Old Testament. They rejected that as the word of God, but the books of Moses, that was scripture. So they really had their own sets of belief, uh, very much like a lot of religious people today. People that adopt some Christian values, uh, maybe they love rituals, maybe they enjoy going to church, they welcome all sorts of ideas and might even call themselves Christians, but it's very much related to the here and now. They believe that, you know, God guides my life, God protects me, God puts his angel on my shoulder, God opens doors and opportunities, uh, God helps me in my studies, and they just like the idea of having somebody, someone to go to when, when they're sad, uh, somebody that is watching over them, and then they also try to be good moral people. But you don't hear them very much about the kingdom, that kingdom that is not of this world. You don't hear them very much about the gospel, about sin, about God's solution for sin, the sacrifice of Christ, they in Christ to have access to that kingdom. That kingdom that reaches beyond the here and now, beyond death at the grave. So here we have the Sadducees. They don't believe in the resurrection. And then they come with this really far-fetched story of um, this woman losing seven husbands. And then they say, if there is such a thing as a resurrection, then logically this woman must spend eternity with seven husbands. How is that possible? So it's a very splendid argument, very solid, they thought. But their assumptions were wrong. There's something to keep in mind, I think. When people argue and make statements, moral statements or scientific statements, um, or opinions about death or about gender or marriage or sex, what is the person that's talking to you? What is the person, the person assuming what is his or her worldview? Jesus says in verse 27, you are quite wrong. Wow, that is so offensive. How dare you say that? Do you know why you're wrong, says Jesus? Two reasons. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Some time ago I was reading on the internet a debate between a Christian and an atheist about the resurrection of Christ. The atheist was a very knowledgeable historian who read almost all the ancient documents of the first century, if not all, with tons of knowledge about early history, but denying the resurrection. And he made this statement. He said, historians can only establish what probably happened in the past. 
And by definition, a miracle is the least probable occurrence. So he argues, since the resurrection would require a miracle, this explanation of the empty tomb will always be less probable than any other explanation. But let me repeat that and try to hear the assumption. So he says, historians can only establish what probably happened in the past. And by definition, a miracle is the least probable occurrence. So since the resurrection would require a miracle, this explanation for the empty tomb will always be less probable than any other explanation. So in fact, he is saying, since miracles are not likely to happen, or are maybe impossible to happen, therefore the resurrection did not happen. It's a splendid argument, as solid as the one that the Sadducees made. But what is the assumption here? Well, that the miracle is always the least probable or even impossible. Says who? A Sunday kid knows there's something wrong with this assumption. And Jesus would say, don't you know the scriptures? Don't you know the power of God? And that is why you are wrong. Terribly wrong, eternally wrong. Something to keep in mind. What is a person assuming? And let's listen to Jesus. So back to the question he asked him, he explains, you know, you assume people are still married in heaven. But that is not the case, period. Your argument crumbles. See, marriage is a gift from God for this life, for companionship, for joy, for the continuation of the human race. And also very important to learn by experience somewhat of the mystery of Christ and the Church. It is a temporal blessing that God gives to us to teach us something about eternity to come, when we, the Bride of Christ, will reign with Him. But it is temporal, it is for this life. People are not married in heaven, so that whole argument crumbles. And then he continues, he says about the resurrection of the dead. I know you guys only believe in the books of Moses. All right then, Exodus 3, second book of Moses, the burning bush. Remember that story? You take that as inspired scripture, so do I. God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God said, I am, not I was. I am. Do you see? how Jesus handles the scriptures, he doesn't take it as a book that was written by people expressing thoughts about God. He doesn't take it even as a book containing words of God. He takes it as the literal word of God, word for word. The Bible that we hold in our hands is the literal inspired word of God. Even the present tense or the past tense of a word Jesus uses that to refute the argument and to teach them the truth about resurrection. Do we handle the word of God as Jesus did? 
Does it have the same authority as it had in the mind of Jesus? You know, in the men's Bible study, we are, we are study, studying Jonah, a man three days in the belly of a fist. That's ridiculous. Well, Jesus did take that as history. He would quote that. He said, you remember Jonah, three days in the fist? And then he will draw the parallel to himself. Do we take the word of God as Jesus did it? Miracles are not so difficult for God. He believed them. In fact, he performed miracles. Do we handle the word of God the same way that Jesus did it? Or are we shaken by human arguments or opinions of this day? So there were Pharisees, there were Herodians, there were Sadducees, and we have atheists and scientists and philosophers and politicians and influencers and teachers and colleagues. And they all might say that we are weird, that we are committing intellectual suicide, that we are being short-sighted, but I think it's the other way around. You know what is weird? To give your all to this world that is passing away instead of rendering to God what belongs to God. You know what's intellectual suicide? To make your own brains, your own mind, the standard for truth. Making your assumptions, your own assumptions, apart from the one who gave you the capacity to think and to make assumptions. That is intellectual suicide. And you know what is short-sighted? To live for the here and now, as if there were no kingdom of God. Jesus says, he is the God of the living. Do we know the power of God? And do we know the scriptures? So as we live in this world, we render, we ought to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar in our work, in our finances, even in our taxes. But we render our lives, our all, to God, now and forever. And of course, all this only through Christ. Because as I said in the beginning, just a few more days, he is on his way to the cross, and he will go there alone. A few more days before he will be flogged and beaten and stripped naked and kneeled to a cross for you and for me. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for this chapter. We admire our Lord Jesus, how he deals with all patience, with trick questions, with all these attacks, still being willing to teach and to correct. Father, we thank you that you present him in your word to us just a few days before he would hang on that cross. Father, it is so amazing. This is our Jesus. This is our Lord and Savior. We love him. We want to love him more. And we realize that our lives do not belong to ourselves. We are created in your image. 
and on top of that, the highest possible price was paid for our lives. Father, we pray that you will impress that truth on our hearts, that really we do not belong to ourselves. Our lives do not belong to us. Help us to render to Caesar what belongs to him in our own context, and help us to render to God what rightfully belongs to him. Help us to do that lovingly and willingly. Help us to serve you and to be a blessing in this world. Father, we pray that our lives will not be about status and influence and power and money, but about Christ and his kingdom. Help us to live in this season, this strange season, with that in mind. Help us to be a blessing for the people around us. In the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.